But I hope you had a great Thanksgiving, and I am looking so forward to opening up God's Word uh, today. And uh, just so that you know, next Sunday begins our Hope for Nations uh, emphasis. Next three Sundays, December 3rd, 10th, and 17th, is just our commitment as a church family to reach out and extend His love to those who have never heard the Gospel. And so we'll be, uh, through testimony, through story, through Scripture, through singing, we'll be remembering the coming of Jesus in Advent season as well as Jesus as the hope for the nations. So I'm looking forward to that today on this uh, Thanksgiving weekend. I want to read these verses and then we will begin. The verses should be on the screen because it's a conglomeration of several passages. I'll begin in Exodus 25, then we'll hit Leviticus 16, then 1 Peter 3. Here we go. The word of the Lord says this. As the Lord was speaking to Moses, God says, Moses, speak to the people of Israel and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Do it exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture. That's how you should make it. And now, the central part of this tabernacle was an altar where a blameless animal would be killed. And we read these words in Leviticus 16.16. 16. After a blameless animal is killed, it says, Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place. That is the most central spot of the tabernacle where God's presence dwells. Why is there atonement needed? It says in 16.16, because of the uncleanness or impurity of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so He shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their impurity or uncleanness. Now what does all this symbol mean? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also, that is the one who is blameless, suffered once for sins, the righteous or blameless one, in the place of the sinful, unrighteous, for one purpose, that He might bring us into the presence of God. Let's pray. Father, there is no greater need in all the universe than that we are with you. And I pray that you would protect us in this moment from making this an exercise of thinking about your presence more than being in your presence. You are here. You love us with a love that is undeniable. Yet our hearts so many times do not. We just want to confess. You are with us. You love us. You will never leave us nor forsake us for those who have trusted in you. So I pray that you would convince us of your love. That you would quiet our hearts as we hear your word and spend time together in your presence. Pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Remember, amen does not mean moving away from his presence. It means let's continue. So, in his presence, this has been Thanksgiving season. I love this season. Probably my favorite, not just Thanksgiving holiday, but this entire season. I love the changing of the leaves. I love when they change colors and all the colors just become brilliant. I love that it's football season. That's near and dear to my heart. I enjoy that a lot. And then in October and November, you get basketball on top of that. After a famine of sports throughout the summer, it's just really fun to me. On top of that, you get the holiday season, right? You get Thanksgiving, which is kind of this foretaste of a break, and then you've kind of got to do life, and then you get another break, and that's really exciting. I love kind of this whole thing. You get food at this season of life, and sometimes in, in, the, 
the type of food you get now is not the same type of food you get all throughout the year. It's special. Some of you want to eat it all throughout the year, and that's okay. You have that freedom. But in our house, there are certain things that are special. They only show up at this time. You get some physical rest. It's just a good season. One of our greatest joys for Thanksgiving is that my wife covers the table with this paper and she writes on it, give thanks, and then there are markers all over it and we're supposed to come and we're supposed to write what we've been thankful for over the year. And as we write these things down, it just really kind of literally sets the table for our Thanksgiving meal. It's our conversation. What are you thankful for? Where have you seen God faithful? And it's just beautiful. One of the most important things about Thanksgiving for me is spending time with family and friends. Sometimes you get to see people that you don't get to see so often. Sometimes as you're running around, it's a time when things begin to slow down just a little bit and you get to spend time with one another. It's a precious gift. But, enjoyment of so many wonderful things can become difficult. In our family, we have Thanksgiving Day, which is a feasting day, and it usually includes football, but I don't know if you watch football, but there's only so much football you can watch. I can keep watching football, and I actually don't feel better after watching all of that football. It was like I, I got a little sick on eating too much food, and now I got a little sick on watching too much football. Sometimes we can get a little sick by being around each other so much. Do I get an amen? Well, there are little... It's almost inevitable, right? When you're around each other, you can get just a little edgy with those that you love. Well, the day after Thanksgiving, we always decorate for Christmas. Christmas music is forbidden in the Cordell House until the day after Thanksgiving. And then it's a free-for-all. So we're playing Christmas music and we're decorating. And usually we have a tradition where uh, one of my sons and I go out and we decorate the house with Christmas lights. And so... We're out there, we spread the lights out, and you plug them in only to find out that all the lights that you bought the previous year, half of them don't work. So I've got them strung out on the front of my house. If you go right now to this moment, because it got a little, you got a little discouraged, they work up to the midpoint of my house. And then you've got like, it's like buck teeth. You've got like a gap, and then you got lights, and then you got a gap, and then you got lights. And then you have a whole other string that just decided not to work at all. And so I was like, okay, it's no big deal. So we have a net that goes over bushes. So we put this net over bushes. It's worked for the past two to three years. I go to plug it in. Net doesn't work. Then we have lights that circle some trees. So I go to set those lights out. At this point, it's like, before I wrap the tired tree, let's plug them in. So I plug them in. And what do you know? Half of the lights work and half of the lights don't on both sets of trees. At this point, I'm like, okay, I think the Lord is telling me something. I don't know what it is, but right now it's like, stop the light stuff. Because I was overwhelmed. But here's what happens. No matter how much good food, no matter how much good earthly fellowship, no matter how much physical rest or watching of TV you get, the heart is still longing for something else. Because all of these are meant to be echoes of our Father's goodness. And I can find myself, if not careful, investing in what one pastor called faux rest. A rest that's attached to earthly things as a Savior, rather than experiencing all of those things in the presence of God. When the lights hit to me, the Lord was kind. You ask the why question, and I begin to say, Lord, I know you're and I know you love us. I want to make this about It gave me no solution to our light problem. As I said, it's still a problem at my house right now. But what it did is it gave me a solution to my heart problem. Augustine says this, You have formed us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in you. Holidays can be a time when, ironically, rather than enjoying the presence of God so that we can enjoy His gifts, we enjoy His gifts without Him until our hearts get so wonky and so upset 
we're asking the why question. And I pray that right now we see that the book of Leviticus, as well as I would argue the first five books of the Bible, as well as the entire Bible itself, is meant to press upon our hearts that our God loves us so much, the greatest gift He can give us is Himself. And us being in His How do we get Him? How do we who are unholy and many times trade so many other things for Him, how do we get into His holy presence? A.W. Tozer, in one of my favorite books, The Pursuit of God, he says this, God meant us to see Him and live with Him and draw our life from His smile. Do you think about God this way? His presence is a place of joy. It's His smile over you. It's His saying, I want to be with you. This is what we were meant for. But we have been guilty of a foul revolt. We have ceased to obey Him or love Him. And in guilt and in fear, we have fled from His presence rather than run into it. The whole work of God in redemption, the whole work of God to save us, is to undo the tragic effects of this foul revolt and to bring us back again into right and eternal relationship with Him. Summary, we need His presence. And He delights to give it. He's not stingy. He's not withholding. He is saying, I want to be with you. Come to me. In this journey that sometimes feels a thousand miles away, it begins with one step at a time. One step at a time into His presence. And so... Leviticus is saying, I want to be with you this much that I will make a way for my people to be with me. And although it's involved, he's saying it's worth it because I love you. And so with this banner over this book, I want to be with you. There are three things that we need to see about his presence. Last week was part one, this is part two. Three main ideas. Holiness, the effect of His presence, to discipline, taking the invitation to make everyday moments a pursuit of His presence. And three, sacrificial love, the extent He goes for us to be in His presence. Let's catch up just briefly. If you remember from last week, if you weren't, you can go back and kind of hit the rewind button and catch up. We remembered that Moses was uniquely in the presence of the living God on Mount Sinai. The pillar of fire and cloud that ushered them through and out of Egypt, through the waters of the Red Sea, also guided them through the wilderness and all the times of not having enough food and brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai. And if you remember what I said, from Exodus 25 all the way to Numbers 10, the narrative comes to a grinding halt and we are there at the foot of Mount Sinai for one year. And all of that amount of material is focused on one year of Israel's life. Because it's so central to the meaning of the Bible. So central to us understanding our need for His presence. So Moses, on Mount Sinai, experienced the pillar of cloud and of fire. The presence of the living God up on top of the mountain. He even got to see the backside of God's glory as He hit Him in the cleft of the rock. Nobody has been with God like Moses had been with God. And yet, He comes down and we begin to see that the people have participated in the treasonous, rebellious adultery against God in making a golden calf. Worshipping other gods before God and making a carved image. The very thing that they agreed in the covenant of the ten words. We will not do this. We will follow you. And they did it in just a few days. So what God says is, as Moses is on the mountain experiencing the presence of God, He says, I'm going to give you a blueprint to the tabernacle. And the tabernacle will be how I will dwell in your midst. I will be with you. But what's so interesting is, when they come down, they build the tabernacle. And right as the, the tabernacle is finished, the pillar of cloud come off of the mountain, they descend onto the tabernacle itself, Moses can't go into the tabernacle. 
He could be in the presence of God upon the mountain, but now he can't go in. What is the problem? And the problem is that Moses, as a representative of this rebellious people who have worshipped the golden calf, he now cannot go into the presence of God. But God is not mean and cruel. He did not say, I'm going to give you my presence and then say, I'm going to withhold it. The entire book of Leviticus is to say, I love you this much. I'm going to make a way for you to get into my presence. That's the book of Leviticus. But there is a tension. The tension is this. How can the holy presence of God be occupied by His unholy It's a tension. And that's what the book of Leviticus is meant to communicate to us. Leviticus is the solution to the problem of how can God's unholy people enjoy the presence of our holy God. Now, I use the word holy for a reason. The reason is, in the book of Leviticus alone, the word holy is used at least 78 times. God wants us to see the connection between His presence and His holiness, and therefore ours. So this begins the first main idea that holiness, our holiness, is the effect of His presence. So let's understand what holy means. What does holy mean? Many times when you hear the word holy, you think morally pure. No stain of sin. And that is true. That is what holiness is. But it's bigger. It's broader than that. It literally means set apart. Set apart. Utterly unique. When God is holy, there's nothing like Him. It's used first in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. When we hear the words, after He has created everything, it says, and God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. He set it apart. Because He rested. What are we supposed to understand? God is the uncaused cause. There's no one like Him. He is the Creator of all things. And when He finishes something He accomplishes it. And He gets the glory as one who is holy and set apart. Now, we don't see the word holy again until the burning bush. Exodus chapter 3, verse 2. Moses sees this burning bush and Moses says, hey, I'm going to come near to God. And God says, Moses, Moses, stop! Stop! Do not come near! Take the sandals off of your feet, for the place you are standing is holy ground. So not only was the bush, the presence of the living God, was He holy, but around it was holy. God's holiness is so radiant that the space around Him is holy. This is the image of the tabernacle. His presence uniquely dwells on the Ark of the Covenant, in the center, in the Holy of Holies, but the space around it was communicated by the tabernacle's further realms, the idea of the outward courtyard. When you see Moses not able to come near, it puts this tension right in front of us. There's something about Moses that can't experience the radiant beauty of our God. And then what does God say right after that? He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I have seen your son. And I'm going to do something about it. Because you know what makes God holy? Unique. Set apart. Is that God is love. Our Trinitarian God, the one that we call Father, it is His essence to be love. It's not that He contains love, for if He contained it in some way, maybe you would think He could lose it. He is love. And His love is holy. That means it sets Him apart. There's nothing like His love. And it's His love that wants us in His presence. 
The people of the Bible Project use the image of the sun to communicate God's holiness. I think it's a helpful metaphor. The sun, think about it. It brings warmth and light and wonder. Like It's amazing. But it's also dangerous, right? It can burn you, blind you. You get too close, it will consume you. This is a beautiful metaphor. Why does it consume you? Why could it burn you? It's not because it's bad. It's because it's so radiantly good. So the sun's presence, it alters us, right? We need to go out in the sun to get what? Vitamin D, right? You need this in your body. It alters you. It makes you better. makes you different. And so... The sun changes you. It warms you. Have you ever been cold? Gone out into the sun? It warms you. It changes you. Have you ever gone out in the sun too long? Get a sunburn. Changes you. It delights you. And then you alter how you live in order to be in the brilliant presence of the sun. You wear sunglasses sometimes because you know you can't look at it too long, but you want to be out in it. You wear sunscreen sometimes because... You know you don't want to burn, but you want to be in it. Sometimes you make UV protection, like at the beach, you want to kind of get the shade on you a little bit, not because you don't want to be in the sun, but because you want to be in the sun. This is the beauty of the presence of God. And our holiness, our lives are changed because we have been in His presence. Just like we are in the sun. I want proximity to the sun. God is saying, you want proximity to me. That is how change happens. So then we read in Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44 and 45. You read this. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore, and be holy as I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. And these have to do with the impurity, or the purity laws that we'll get into in just a little bit. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You therefore shall be holy as I am holy. Holiness is the command for us to be set apart. A set apart people in His presence. He is what makes us set apart. To be His representatives to a lost and dying world. But out of context, can't that sound a little bit like do better? Be holy because I'm holy. Get your act together. That's not the context of Leviticus 11. Yes, change must happen. But change can only happen because God says, I am the Lord your God. I'm the one that brought you out of the land of Egypt. I'm the one that has fought for you. I'm the one that's fighting for you and will continue to do so. You need me. And when you're in me, I will change you. This is the beauty of God's holy presence. He wants us in His presence. And He knows that if He is not among us, we have no hope for change. His holy presence is our greatest gift. And so, He has made a way. I want to show you the overview of the book of Leviticus again real quickly. If you understand that God is holy and we need to be in His presence, but Moses as the representative can't go into the tabernacle, God must speak out from the tabernacle. What God does is He arrange, arranges through literary design, He arranges rituals, priests, and purity. And ultimately at the center of the center of the center of the, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, you see the Day of Atonement where God makes all things right. But He went to this extent because in His holiness, He wants us to be holy and to be in His presence. He gave ritual offerings. He gave ritual festivals. He gave us representatives called priests. When we kept sinning and kept sinning, the people of Israel did, He gave them priests to go in their stead. And then when they were impure, just touching things of death, it's not morally wrong, but they were around the things of death they needed to be reconciled so they didn't pollute each other and pollute God's holy presence. 
God is so for us being in His presence. He made a way. Now, before we dive into the offerings, the rituals, the priests, and the purity, and the Day of Atonement, before we dive in, we just must remember this. Let's fast forward about 600 years to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah has a vision. You might know this vision well. Isaiah chapter 6. And what happens in Isaiah chapter 6 is this. Isaiah chapter 6, he has a vision where Isaiah is in the temple. Which the temple is the more permanent structure made in Jerusalem as the tabernacle in Jerusalem, so to speak. And so it has the Holy of Holies Isaiah finds himself in the temple and he knows he can't be there without being incinerated. And so there's a problem. God is holy, holy, holy. That's what's sung all around him. The whole earth is filled with his glory. But then he sees a seraphim, an angel, with a coal in its hand and it touches Isaiah's mouth. And when it touches Isaiah's mouth, you would expect the holy fire of God's presence to incinerate him, but it does something just the opposite. It makes him pure. It cleanses him. The holy presence of God makes him more like God. Listen to these words. Then, Isaiah chapter 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. And you would expect to read, and now you're dead. Instead, what you read, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. It's covered over. This is what God does. You've got to understand something. We're going to talk just briefly about the purity laws. The whole premise behind these laws was that if you touched a dead body, you were impure. It's not that that was a sin. You were impure. You had to then separate yourself for a season of time because... If you touch something that was impure, you became impure. And if you being impure touched something that was clean, you transferred that impurity to something else. Impure things touch something clean, it becomes impure. Until Jesus comes on the scene. And when Jesus comes on the scene, and the woman is bleeding for years, and she touches the hem of His garment, what should have happened was he became impure. Instead, she became clean. When the presence of the living God shows up on the scene, unholy people become holy. They become clean. And that is the only hope for our sin-wrought hearts and our unholy lives. Is that we are in the presence of the living God. So many religious groups some called churches, totally reorient the process of change. And they say, get your act together, then God might accept you. God doesn't want you happy, He wants you holy. I don't know who made up that phrase, but it's just ridiculous. How about the only way you can be happy is if you are in the presence of God who makes you holy. How about we don't pick we're going to be holy and happy because we're in His presence. It's what He does in our lives. And so what happens in so many of our lives, we are found duct-taping fruit onto our lives. I'm going to go to church in my own strength. That makes me holy. I'm going to pray so many times. That makes me holy. I'm going to be good. I'm going to stop sinning. That makes me holy. All of those are right and good, but apart from the presence of God, what happens to duct-tape fruit? It falls. What is needed is that the people of God take Jesus up on His Word when He says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. And those who abide in me will bear much fruit. Do you hear that? 
so many of us are told, bear fruit, bear fruit, bear fruit. John 15 says, abide, 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 abide. You rest in me, the fruit will come. This is the point of the book of Leviticus. Holiness only comes out when you're in His presence. And apart from His presence, you cannot be holy. We need the presence of the living God. I pray this excites you about the prospect of change in your life because Jesus showed up on the scene. The One whose purity and beauty changes the impure so that when we run into His presence, we are changed. We don't pollute Him. He cleans us. This is the beauty of Calvary. But it goes even further. If you fast forward to the book of Leviticus, I mean to the book of Ezekiel, the Bible Project people pull this out and it was so helpful for me. The image of Ezekiel is of a temple. And out of the temple flows rivers of living water. And as the water begins to flow out, trees and life begins to spring up. And the water flows into the Dead Sea and creates life in the Dead Sea. And then you're like, Vision over, and you're not really sure where this is going. Until Jesus comes on the scene. And He says, I am, and my people are, the temple. And when He talks about us trusting in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of sins, He says, and the Holy Spirit will come and take residence in you, and He will be like springs of living water springing up continually out of your heart. Because just as the waters go out of the temple into the world and they create life. So we too, filled with the Holy Spirit, are meant to be His agents of change. In the same way that Jesus touches the impure and they become pure, so we are supposed to walk in holiness in such a way that our lives of love change the world around us. The way you do your work, no matter what your occupation is, is meant to be the Holy Spirit working in and through you so that what you touch begins to resemble Him. Whether it's your joy, whether it's your peace, whether it's a heart of thanksgiving, whether it's a proclamation of the good news and somebody's life is changed, thousands of ways that the Holy Spirit uses His people to be the streams of living water that run throughout this earth so that they would be convinced. So that we would be convinced. In His presence, His fullness of joy. We need to be in Him. Holiness is the effect of the presence of the living God. It's what happens when you're in His presence. And that's why you've heard the verse, delight yourself in the Lord and He will what? Give you the desires of your heart. Abide in Him. Press into Him, and He will so change your heart that your desires begin to reflect His desires. Abide. Delight. Be in His presence. And the beauty of Leviticus is God has made a way. God has made a way. And so, what we see is that holiness is the effect of His presence. And discipline, living a holy life, is taking God up on His invitation. His invitation to make everyday moments a pursuit of His presence. Now, discipline can be a bad word for some people. Especially in our culture, you say the word discipline and you're just like, yeah, you're putting too many rules on me. I feel restricted. I need freedom. But discipline is not a bad word. It's a gift. John Montcomer in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, talks about disciplines as the habits of Jesus. It's following Jesus and forming life habits around following Jesus. But he makes a really helpful distinction that our life of prayer or coming to church or being in the Bible, these quote, disciplines or rituals or things that we do, they are not the end in themselves. But those things are so that we would be in the presence of God. He is the end. 
So many times we make the action the end. But what is so unique about the disciplines that God invites us into, the habits that God invites us into, it's not simply action, but it is confessing our inability to do everything that we need to do. And it's running into His presence and asking Him to supply what He promises to supply. The habits, the disciplines are not the end Jesus is. Here's a quote from the book. The end is life to the full with Jesus. To spend every waking moment in the conscious enjoyment of Jesus' company. To spend our entire lives with the most loving, joyful, peaceful person ever to live. It's to be in His presence. You think about opening your Bible that way. You think about just stopping and talking to Him all throughout your day. That way. Habit but not to earn approval to be in His presence. Those who are fully accepted run into His presence. And that's what He did in the book of Leviticus. He gave people everyday opportunity to understand that their life was all connected to God and that they needed His presence in the everyday. And so, morning and evening, there were sacrifices being made. These rituals. Let's put the overview of the whole book up again if we can. And so what we're looking at is, in Leviticus 1-7, to it's these offerings. Two offerings to say thank you. Three offerings to say I'm sorry. But the burnt offering was offered morning and evening. The grain offering, I think it was, was offered morning and evening. These were daily parts of the rituals of the people. Why? Why? Because what's meant to be built into the people is a Godward orientation day and night, all throughout the day. And even with the burnt offering, which was also called the ascension offering, because it was to be totally consumed and the smoke would go up to God and it was transformed into a pleasing aroma, it was meant to remind the people that day after day we confess. We confess our sins to God. And He accepts it through the blood of another. It's a life of confession. But that means a life of a Godward bent. It's not just God saying, oh, stop doing it, stop doing it. It's God saying, I want you with me. Sin is running away from the presence of God. Confession is running into the presence of God. And these offerings were running into the presence of God as they were being offered. God, I thank You for all that You've given. God, I want to remember You. And that's why the festivals existed, which are the other rituals in Leviticus 23 and 25. Those seven feasts were meant to help them remember. And then He gave them priests. In Leviticus 8-10, to He said, because Israel keeps sinning, I'm going to give you a representative. It's called a priest. And that priest was going to go into the tabernacle in their place. And so Leviticus 21-22 to were all the qualifications that this priest had to have. And it was really over the top, kind of really detailed about what this priest needed to have. But at the end of Leviticus chapters 8-10, to around 9 and 10, we see something going horribly wrong. Something horribly wrong. Aaron, the high priest, he and his sons were set apart for seven days. For seven days they were to feast in front of the tabernacle awaiting for their first day on the job, so to speak. Day eight was going to be their first day on the job and so they're setting themselves apart. They've sacrificed. Moses is putting oil on Aaron and, and putting oil on the things around to set it apart as holy. And they were just waiting for this moment to go into the presence of God and to begin their job as high priest. And Aaron goes in to the presence of God and he offers the sacrifices that were required. But on day 8, that very day, he has two sons, Nadab and Abihu, who totally did not follow God's prescription for how the priests were supposed to go. They did their own rituals in their own timing and they were struck down dead immediately. And now we have a problem. First day on the job, 
the priests supposed to be the representatives of the people. Now all of a sudden, they've blown it. Aaron does not protest. He's silent because he knows God was right to punish his sons for totally desecrating the priesthood. And now we have an even bigger problem that the priests who are supposed to be representative have not only sinned, but they have polluted the temple area. They've died. You've got dead bodies in the temple. And then you know what Moses says after the fact? He says, and we need to make a law that there should be no drinking on the job. It's really bizarre. Insinuating that probably they had gotten drunk and that's why they were doing some of the things they were doing. And he is saying these priests were meant to be set apart. They were meant to think about their lives in such a disciplined way that they were my representatives. And instead, they totally chose other things other than me. Now they weren't a perfect representative, and now they've desecrated the temple. And that's a problem because as you look at these purity laws that were given to us, or the given to, not us, thankfully, not us, given to the people of Israel, it was because if they touched death, they would spread death. And so there were many laws about being around things of death that they needed to kind of pull away for a season so that they did not spread their impurities. Need to make these things clear. When it came to certain things, they were impure. Here are the things that Leviticus brings out. Touching dead bodies, touching certain animals, having a skin disease, coming in contact with bodily reproductive fluids, and touching mold or fungus. I know that will bless you today. Those things made them impure. Once again, it was not sin. It was not a moral failure. It made them impure. And what that had to do with the presence of God was that they, were they to have touched those things, they were to pollute the presence of God. And they would pollute others. So there was a season where they had to pull away for like seven days for some of these things so that they could become pure. God made a way for them to be pure even in the midst of the death all around them in the world. Why? Because He wanted them in His presence. He wanted them in His presence. And now friends, our world is filled with contamination. It is. It's filled with death and decay. And it splashes upon us every now and then. We don't have to run away and separate ourselves for seven days. But what we do when we participate in sin, or we find ourselves in a sinful world, the invitation of our Savior is, come into my presence. Sit with me. I will change you. And make you a light. City on a hill. To a world that's lost and dying. Friends, without his without being with, without the disciplines of being among his people, spending time in his word, without his presence, we too will be stained by the world. It will affect us. Rather than us being agents of change in the world, we'll be changed by the world. Be holy as I am holy. That only happens in His presence. So, at the end of the book of Leviticus, what we find is, in the very apex, the center of it all, is the Day of Atonement. Because what we have seen is that there's death all around. Individual Israelites are sinning. The priests are sinning. Sometimes it's intentional. Sometimes it's unintentional. And there's all kinds of mess happening everywhere. What is going to pay the price? What is going to keep them in fellowship with me? As we talked last week, it is this day of atonement. This day of atonement 
is this beautiful picture. Two goats representing one offer that helps us to see the love of our Savior. I did rewind just a little bit, but since we've been here, it'll be cool. Two goats. Bloodshed of one goat. It was killed. And the blood was taken by the high priest once a year into the innermost court of the tabernacle, which represented the presence of God. It was there where the Ark of the Covenant was, and it was there upon the Ark of the Covenant where the cherubim sat, where the atonement lid set on top of this Ark of the Covenant, where the fire of God's presence would come down. And once a year, the high priest was to come in with the blood of that goat, and he was to take it, and he was to sprinkle it, throw it, on the covenant lid, on the atonement lid. And that was, the life of the blood was meant to be something that cleansed the impurity of the temple. Because sinful people were kind of coming in and out through all these rituals. But once a, once a year, the blood, the life of the blood, was something that, although it feels kind of gross to us, it actually was the cleansing agent. That's why it was sprinkled and thrown on the presence of God in the temple, the Holy of Holies. It was a purification offer. And then as the high priest made his way out, the tabernacle always faced west. And so as he made his way out, he was going east. It was the picture of being exiled from the presence of God and the priest would walk backwards through one veil, through another veil, sprinkling this blood of the goat finally on the altar, and then he would pour the rest of the blood out at the base of the altar. Saying this whole place needs cleansing and purification for the sins of the people. So if you follow it, the priest had to be in the presence of God, but also was the purification for the people as he left the presence of God. And then there was a second goat. The second goat was where the priest would lay his hands upon the goat and the goat would go out into the wilderness. Why? The wilderness was meant to be a symbol or a place where kind of ultimately, long story, I can get you there if we need to, but the presence where the devil would dwell. And so when you send the goat out into the wilderness with the sins upon him. It was giving back to the devil what he had been giving. Giving him all of the mess of the people of Israel. And that scapegoat ran out. Why do I go into labor all? Because our Savior, it says in Hebrews, he went outside the He bore our sin and our shame in His body on the tree. It was placed upon Him. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He bore it all. He was that scapegoat that went out into the wilderness. And He said, I've rendered the victory over sin, Satan, and death. But He was also the one who shed blood purifies the people of God. In Him is life. And He alone was able to go into the presence of God once and for all. Which is why He was hanging on the cross and it says in the veil, the one that covered the Holy of Holies, which was only be able to enter into one time a year, it was ripped from top to bottom because of the death of Jesus so that the people who trusted in Jesus would no longer have to go through these sacrifices nor go through a priest but they themselves through Jesus Christ alone could go into His presence day after day after day after day. And we could make every single moment an abiding moment in the presence of God. It is free, friends. It is free. And the book of Leviticus is a pointer over and over to the sufficiency of Jesus for you and for I to come boldly into the presence of God. Our Father, who says, I loved you so much, I made a way. It's to change how we live. 
And friends, just like I was talking about with Thanksgiving, it reorients how you enjoy everyday life. We begin to make every moment an abiding moment. More and more conscious of His presence. And then you more fully enjoy, I would argue, the presence of family and friends. Because they're not your Savior, they're a gift. You more fully enjoy the food because they help you taste and see that the Lord is good. You more fully enjoy football because it's fun. It's not something that can give you only what Jesus can give you. He invites you, me, into His presence. Can I tell you something? The book of Leviticus works. When you read Numbers 1, you know what you read? What you read in Numbers 1 is that Moses was able to enter into the tabernacle. Listen to these words. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of the Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month, the second year, after they had come out of the land of Egypt. He was in the tent. All these rituals worked. The point is, He wants you and I in His presence. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that we would see the extent of His sacrificial love given to us in Christ. Father, I pray that we would see the extent of Your patience with us. I pray, Father, that we would see how much You love us and want to be with us. Father, I confess my mind gets distracted. My heart goes after so many things. And I just pray that as a church family, we would run into your presence. We would press one another to be in the presence of the living God. Father, I just think about those impurity rituals and how long it might, must have felt to be away for seven days from family or friends or from sacrificing in the temple, but all of this so that we would have a longing. They would have a longing to be in your presence, a longing for wrongs to be made right. And Father, we wait. We wait for you to come again. And I just pray that what we keep pressing one another towards day in and day out is that if you're worth the wait. You're worth the wait. And so, Father, now as we have the Lord's Supper together, I just pray that this would be a running into your presence. Please meet with us now. We pray. In a spirit of prayer, I just invite you to sit with the Lord for a time of reflection as we get ready to take the Lord's Supper, which is a picture of the new covenant in His blood. only way that life could be given was through the blood of Jesus, the once-for-all sacrifice. He is the one who takes His cleanness and makes us clean. And He is the one that fills, up with, fills us up with all that we need so that we can be a presence of His love to the world. But right now we need to confess our hearts, our sin, give Him all that we are, and walk into His presence. And after that, those who are followers of Jesus, we will take the Lord's Supper.